The time at which this government is taking over the reins is one of enormous uncertainty and enormous challenge. We are seeing also the real demand across portfolios for integrated responses to the international environment. Welcome to the National Security Podcast, brought to you by the ANU National Security College with support from policyforum.net. In this episode, Major General Duncan Lewis, former National Security Advisor and Director General of ASIO, and Professor Caitlin Byrne, Director of the Griffith Asia Institute, join Professor Rory Medcalf to make sense of Labor's recent electoral victory and the potential foreign and security policy implications. This discussion was recorded on Monday 23rd of May. Before we get into it, we'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal people, traditional owners of the land from which we broadcast. We pay our respects to the Elders past, present and emerging. So welcome to this special edition of the National Security Podcast, where we try to make sense of the very significant change in Australia's political landscape over the weekend, the Australian federal election and uh, the election of a Labor government under Anthony Albanese, uh, ending nine years of conservative coalition rule in this country. What does that mean for Australia's foreign and security policy settings? Well, to help me make sense of this, I'm joined uh, from the Griffith Asia Institute uh, by Caitlin Byrne, and I'm joined by Duncan Lewis here in Canberra, both drawing on your extensive experience in foreign uh, and security policy. I might actually begin with you, Caitlin, if I may, uh, because you're looking, I imagine, at the regional impact of this story, the foreign policy consequences of a new Australian government. How do you think uh, this is going to play out in the region and in how Australia is perceived by its neighbours? Thanks, Rory, and really fabulous to be joining you and Duncan this morning in conversation. As you mentioned, I'm joining you from Brisbane, the traditional lands of the Turrbal and Jagera peoples. It's a great pleasure to be able to do that. So, you know, you're right. This is, I think, what we've seen over the weekend, consequential change in the kind of complexion of Australia's government. And that is going to have a ripple-on effect for our foreign policy. You know, what I think we're going to see is an opportunity for a refresh of the way that Australia positions itself in the world. I wouldn't go so far as to say a reset, and I think substantively much of the policy is going to, you know, really follow similar lines, but we're going to see some significant shifts in areas like climate change, for example, um, Australia's relationship building, an, an emphasis on the value of diplomacy as a part of our integrated statecraft. Um, so all of that's really important. One of the things I think is is going to be fascinating, there's no time for anyone to rest on their laurels. And with Albanese and Wong heading over to the Quad meeting in, in Japan uh, with, with Quad leaders tomorrow, that's going to be a really important opportunity for the new government to actually introduce itself and its key policies to the rest of the world to start building those really critical relationships. So thinking about an Indo-Pacific framework first, but then what we are going to, I think, be watching very closely is how they actually start to build and engage much more broadly and much more deeply in our own region. So with Southeast Asian leaders uh, and, of course, with Pacific leaders as well. Can I just push you on that a little bit? I mean, it's not as if the uh, the three conservative governments we've just had, um, Abbott, 
Turnbull Morrison, it's not as if they didn't engage in South, uh, Southeast Asia or the Pacific. Mm. So what's the difference here? Yeah, you're right. But I don't know that we've missed, I think, a couple of things. Um, there has been engagement, and I think that is worth acknowledging. We've seen a number of new posts established over the last five years, um, particularly within that near region. But at the same time, that continuous kind of undercutting of the of DFAT's budget each year, as well as our development assistance budget, that has really cut into the nature, the depth of those relationships. And I think what Australia has been able to do on the ground, the diplomatic service, you know, these words were, were used uh, in 2009 by the Lowy Institute's Blue Ribbon Report on diplomatic capability, but DFAT has been significantly and consistently hollowed out and stretched thin. So I think looking at a, a kind of reorientation of, of funding into our diplomatic service, the building of capability as well will be important. Now, all of that has to can only really happen well if we see a very clear direction from the government on where they want to take foreign policy, this government's foreign policy. I'm not suggesting a new white paper, but I do think we will need to see in the very not too distant future a clear statement, whether it's to Parliament or, or elsewhere, from the Foreign Minister and from the Prime Minister on where they see foreign policy going for Australia, um, what's the direction going to be, what are going to be the key priorities and objectives for them to take forward in this term and potentially beyond. And so there's that question of perception as well as resourcing, and let's come back to resourcing a bit later on because none of this is going to be, uh, you know, entirely without without cost. But turning to regional perceptions, uh, Southeast Asian perceptions, uh, perceptions in the Pacific, uh, what do you think will change there? I think we've already seen coming through from in in press from around the world, you know, a sense that that. that the, current, the incoming government's position on climate change is a bit of a game changer. Certainly Pacific Island nations are keen to engage on that. You know, that will, will actually shift the kind of nature of the relationship that I think Australia is going to be able to build with counterparts in the region. So that's number one. Um, and I think, you know, we're going to see greater investments in that diplomatic capability. We've seen, we've heard some discussion around the appointment of a special envoy, for example, to ASEAN. I'm less excited about that. I think we already have, you know, as we've discussed, an ambassador um, based in, that, that has the ASEAN remit. Um, I'd like to see a greater emphasis on our career diplomats, those people that have international policy capability and, and specialisation to go with that rather than political appointees, you know, and, and that would be a shift. We've had a trend over the last decade for more political appointees in high-level diplomatic roles. So I'd like to see some of that change and I think we, we could well see that change. And I'm sure you're not saying this just as a, uh, a former DFAT officer, Caitlin. Oh, definitely not. And can I say just on that point, you know, an area I've been really interested in is not just how career diplomats, the traditional diplomats engage in the space, but how how do we engage through public diplomacy? What role is there for businesses, for example, um, for our cultural institutions? Now, we saw the soft power review junked in 2018 under the former government. That could well be an issue that that as Foreign Minister Penny Wong actually brings to the fore again. I think she's She's certainly alive to the potential of soft power, not as not as a silver bullet or as an answer, but it, but as a, a part again of our broader statecraft and capability in the region. 
A couple of points I might add there because I, mm-hmm. I, I think that the emphasis on soft power can sometimes be misinterpreted in my view. You know, soft power can have very hard edges. It can actually have substantial um, consequences. And, and for instance, it's, uh, it's interesting to me uh, that, uh, that Penny Wong uh, just recently in, her, um, in, in the debate at the National Press Club was arguing for a foreign policy that reflected Australia's true diversity, that um, that had uh, a First Nations uh, character to it. But she also made the point that doing that would help Australia counter the disinformation, to counter the narrative that we are a divided country or that we are a country that's stuck in the past, uh, but, mm. but to emphasise that um, the Australia that's engaging in the, re- in the region really reflects its own diversity. And it occurs to me that that has uh, potentially real-world consequences apart from anything else. It could help us counter uh, the, uh, the disinformation narratives that, that, that China and some others have been, have been expressing that somehow uh, Australia is, a, you know, is an outpost of a, of a very old-fashioned um, you know, Western or, or Anglo-Saxon empire rather than a, a country making its way in the region. So I think, it's, I think your point about soft power is, is, is well taken. And it's. Re- I think we've got an opportunity here when we talk about Australia's success as a multicultural country. You know, that's a fundamental underpinning, really, of our soft power in the world. We've got to mobilise that. Uh, and I think through this election, we've seen a greater diversity, both in women, but also more broadly diversity in the candidates that have come to the fore. That's going to represent Australia slightly differently to the world. And just thinking about the G20, if we see uh, Penny Wong as Foreign Minister, Katie Gallagher as Finance Minister in Aging, uh, you know, that too adds to a, a different kind of complexion at the ministerial level, which I think will be really welcomed, particularly by Indonesia, where we see that similar kind of gender equity at play as well. Lots to come back to in the conversation on perception uh, and reality, but I want to turn, Duncan, to you on this perception question, uh, because as a national security leader and a national security practitioner, uh, I guess you've often been focused on what lies behind perception, on the the consequences and the material realities. Um, Do you think the way the region uh, sees this change of government is going to have a bearing on actual security outcomes? Um, I, I think it will. Um, I don't overestimate the extent of that, of course, but the perception will be important. If you're going to start a meaningful conversation with other countries in the region about the future, uh, that needs to be done on the basis of some trust and some goodwill. Um, you don't start in opposite corners. And I think the extent, to this extent, the current, the, the change of government that's just taken place might allow, uh, better freer, uh, more free-flowing discussions to take place. Um, I would say, having been involved in fairly close up with a number of changes of government over the years, they're always associated with a an optimism and a, and a spring in the step of many. And of course, that's going on this morning. As I was coming here, I, I was just watching the swearing in of uh, Anthony Albanese and some of his new senior ministers. Um, but the time at which this government is taking over the reins is one of enormous uncertainty and enormous challenge. And from a security point of view, there are two, I think, overwhelming themes which will need to be addressed. Um, the, the first is the issue of the challenge to the existing world order, a world order that has served Australia so very well since the sort of Bretton Woods days. Um, 
that's under challenge and uh, any change to that world order uh, could uh, possibly not be to Australia's advantage. So we need to be very conscious about working that. Um, and in order to work that particular issue, we are going to need fellow travellers. Uh, this is the idea of increasing our circle of, of countries with whom we work collaboratively on maintaining and extending the world order in such a way that it, um, you know, doesn't have the the powerful doing as they can and the weak suffering as they must. I mean, that is a that is a very important um, d dimension. Um, so uh, the Albanese government comes into into power at a time when there is enormous challenge in front of them. I would make the point that on the security front there is generally more continuity than discontinuity as governments change. The arguments tend to be in the margins. There are some core issues, obviously, that, that are slightly different, but it is largely a, an argument in the margins. And I think going back to Caitlin's point, it's almost the, it's the tone and the colour, I suppose, of the discussions that take place that can be, can be different. Um, and I think in this particular instance, um, they, they will be different. So let's take that a little bit further, if we can, Duncan, on um, looking at the region specifically. I think we've, we've already mentioned the Quad and the importance of the Quad. And I you know, personally think that the, um, the visit this week to Tokyo for that Quad leaders meeting is a, it's an extraordinary opportunity to position Australia on the world stage and with key partners in terms of broad continuity in our settings as an Indo-Pacific partner, but also signals, especially to the United States, um, of, you know, of literally a more progressive stance on, um, on, on climate policy and on development assistance. Uh, so the Quad is one, uh, measure or one platform for expressing that view to the, to the region and the world. But what about Southeast Asia or the Pacific? And, and I'm thinking particularly about Indonesia in this regard. Um, what will the perception be and what can we do? Um, I, I think this is very important and I speak now as somebody who's invested quite a lot of time in Indonesia over the years, having lived there for a number of years and, and served in the embassy on several occasions. Um, I think Indonesia uh, is a relationship which requires even more attention than it has received um, over the years. Uh, it is a critical relationship. Uh, it is one where we have enormous resource in this country of knowledge about Indonesia, and it's not kind of being properly harnessed. We should be using that sort of knowledge base more to engage with a country that's so very important to us. Uh, any projection of the size of the Indonesian economy or Indonesia's place in the world will show you how important that country is going to be going forward. Um, the influence that Indonesia has within the ASEAN um, nations is very important and the, and the position they see themselves in as, as being you know a, a, a prominent member of that uh, of that organization um, so I think there is much work uh, to be done uh, I was particularly worried at the time of AUKUS at the reaction among some of our Southeast Asian neighbors about Australia's kind of you know to be cynical the return to the Anglosphere um, now if that indeed was a feeling that was widely held in Southeast Asia, then that is 
something we need to pay a lot of attention to because the great work that was done by some of the you know wonderful diplomats in Australia back in the post-war uh, World War II era uh, to set up relationships with Southeast Asia could easily be eroded by this kind of perception so I think we need to get onto that quick smart um, and I would be and I'm sure that uh, new Minister Wong Foreign Minister Wong just sworn in this morning uh, will be right on to that uh, onto that issue. I'm sure at a bureaucratic level there have been attempts to try to um, explain AUKUS to our our friends in Southeast oh, have, Asia, yes. but now there's the opportunity for that political cut through. And I guess for my own money, I think in some ways AUKUS would have been um, a much more effective arrangement if it lacked the acronym and perhaps had fewer flags uh, at the time of its announcement, but that's history. Um, I think the logic of a capability-based uh, technology cooperation arrangement with the United States and the UK still makes very, very good sense Absolutely. for Australia's interests. Um, we haven't talked about Europe so much in this conversation yet, and I think that if you're looking globally, if you're looking at the Indo-Pacific and, and noting this week that here at the National Security College we'll actually be uh, hosting a workshop with our EU and, uh, and French embassies here in Canberra to look at Indo-Pacific strategy how do you think uh, the opportunity presents itself now for the new Australian government to strengthen strategic ties with Europe, Duncan? Mm. Well, I think um, having been our ambassador to the EU, that there are two opportunities that really strike me right now. Um, unfortunately, I had the unenviable job, as diplomats do from time to time, to share the bad news with the European Union that we had changed our policy away from some of the uh, climate change initiatives that were looking so promising uh, at the time. Uh, that's now changed, and I'm sure that the current ambassador to the EU will be uh, shortly uh, back in through the doors of the EU to explain that Australia is uh, it now has a, a different series of settings with regard to policy, uh, with regard to climate change that will be more agreeable to the European Union. So that will change that particular tone. The second thing, of course, is the advent of the war in the Ukraine. That that has brought a certain focus to the EU and to NATO. Uh, you've seen the enormous change in position taken by Germany over the last few months, uh, where the Europeans now are very focused on security and the future. And so to that extent, we have a commonality of interest and concern. And so I think that on those two fronts, on climate change and on security, uh, there is uh, some very positive work to be done with the EU and, of course, with NATO. And I guess it goes without saying, and I, you feel free to comment or not, but it goes without saying that the um, the dimension of trust in uh, relations with a number of EU countries, but with France in particular, may be seen in a, in a different light now. The French issue we could discuss all morning, of course. Um, you know, I, I, I personally am very sad that uh, things turned out the way they did, and we certainly need to fix that as quickly as we can. The relationship with France will get back to normal, but it will take a... Uh, fair amount of time and we need to work hard on it. Caitlin, please, you have a, uh, a perspective on this, I'm sure. Oh, well, absolutely. I just think it was really interesting to see the outgoing Foreign Minister comment on exactly this, the French Foreign Minister comment on the fact that an Albanese government opens the door for more open and constructive relationships going forward. So, you know, I think that this will be interesting for the way that, that the Albanese government takes all of its relationships forward. But I'd have to agree on the climate change and particularly how climate change fits into Australia's multilateral trade agreements as well. That will be a positive for the EU and it will be seen as a positive for the US as well. 
Caitlin, can I um, ask you a little more about, uh, if you like, the broader international set of policy portfolios, not only foreign affairs and, if you like, uh, conventional diplomacy? I know you've already mentioned that uh, from a soft power perspective, it makes sense to build a much more united Team Australia message that involves uh, culture and business and so forth. But there are plenty of other, uh, as you've observed yourself, international portfolios in government. Pretty much every ministry these days has an international dimension to it and not only trade. Um, So perhaps you could comment on how you think the Albanese government will, um, will manifest that way. Yeah, that's a great point, um, Rory. And I think a real challenge going forward in that, you know, so many of the issues and, and Duncan has, has already spoken to the fact that we are really in this, this particular era of such contest and change and volatility. But, but we are seeing also the real demand across portfolios for integrated responses to the international environment, whether we're talking about agriculture, energy, um, or, or climate or, you know, some of the issues that are going to be on the, the G20's agenda going forward as well. Um, so I think we haven't really seen, I think we'll, it will be really interesting to see how some of these portfolios are firmed up over the next couple of days. Um, I think it's it's positive to have seen Treasury and Finance already, you know, we'll see Jim Chalmers in Treasury and Katie Gallagher in Finance. Uh, I'll be interested to see how trade, defence, but also some of the the environment and water portfolios pan out, how they're going to actually integrate their approaches on foreign defence and security policy because all of these issues really are integrated now. Now, this is also an issue of capability at the bureaucratic level. Again, I, I would put a plug here for the capability that can be developed through the Diplomatic Academy. You know, that that's an, a kind of new arm to to the DFAT world that really at this stage, you know, has untapped potential to build capability in international policy and statecraft, but also connect to, particularly in our region, to other foreign ministries, to building capability across Southeast Asia in the Pacific. They're doing some of that now, but I think there's a real opportunity to see that develop as well. So I think there's more. This is a space to watch, Rory, where, you know, I think there's still some dynamics underway uh, as we see those portfolios firm up. I would add uh, technology and innovation to that mix as well. And oh, I think yeah. to be to be fair to uh, the past few governments and not only uh, the Morrison government, but I think Turnbull in particular, there was an in-principle recognition that uh, Australia's potential uh, as an innovator, that uh, in- information technologies, that Cyber, not just in a security sense, but in a more mm-hmm. positive uh, uh, in, in industry sense, if you like, was a potential Australian strength. But I yeah. think the um, the efforts to build a cohe- cohesive approach among uh, all of the uh, the agencies weren't always reflected by by political leadership. Certainly not in the past few years. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see if uh, the new government recognises that. Opportunity. We did. Uh, we did have a. I think an interesting podcast on this um, program last year with Tim Watts to that um, to that end. So let's see where that yeah. goes. Uh, but mo- moving back to security in a, I guess, a harder sense. Uh, domestic security hasn't gone away. We've talked a lot just now about uh, the international environment. We've touched on the China challenge, and we should 
still keep focus on that, I'm sure. But Duncan, uh, in your previous uh, incarnation as Director General of ASIO, you paid a lot of attention to uh, extremism, to terrorism. This hasn't gone away from the Australian community. Uh, how do you think uh, a new government with such a, I guess, generally affirmative or positive agenda and, and maybe an agenda that doesn't seem to be based so much on fear or anxiety, how are they going to come to terms with the reality that we do live in a dangerous neighbourhood or a dangerous region and that there are still threats to Australian interests and values at home? Mm. Um, th this will be um, a big challenge uh, for the incoming government, uh, but I will say that uh, even during their last period in office, uh, Labor were faced with a number of these issues and so it won't be completely new. The team that's coming in is very experienced. They're, they're leaders that have been around for, for some time and so I'm, I'm confident in that respect. Let me say, when I was speaking a moment ago, I said there were two great issues facing us and I, I detailed off the one that really impacts our, our external defence concerns and that, that was the issue of the world order. Uh, the one that impacts our domestic concern is what I describe as the, the existing threat to democracy and democracies around the world. Uh, the great democracies and some of the uh, smaller democracies are currently under threat uh, the threat comes from both within and externally. And from within, it's a generally as a result of the democracies failing to deliver on what was seen as a promise, a promise of continuous prosperity and so forth. And nowhere has that been more evident than, say, in the United States with those terrible events of January uh, of last year on Capitol Hill. Um, it's been less obvious here in Australia because of the um, rather miraculous results this country has achieved in terms of continuous growth over you know near 30 years um, so uh, so domestic security uh, will will be a big issue with regard to the preservation of all of those democratic principles and things that we hold we hold dear um, I think the issue of calling out extremes uh, is something that we need to uh, probably step up our effort on. Um, there, there is always a bit of dancing around the edges of this. Uh, if you have a conservative government, they dance around the edge of calling out right-wing extremism. And if you have a, a left-leaning government, they dance around the issues of, of some of the left-wing movements mm. around the place. So we need to be careful. We need to call it as it is. But there does need to be, in terms of our domestic security settings, a degree of humanity uh, in the way we apply it because it's very easy to start um, uh, vilifying and um, marginalizing some of our, um, uh, our minority communities. And I certainly felt that intensely around the issue of uh, Islamic terrorism uh, and the uh, difficulties we had um, managing the messaging and so forth for the Islamic community, the Muslim community here in Australia. And it worried me as I was leaving uh, the public service that we were at risk of heading down a similar sort of path with regard to the Chinese minority here in Australia, that there would be a vilification that you know, foreign interference in this country was, was something associated with the Chinese minority community here. And as we know, uh, those uh, minority communities are overwhelmingly wonderful Australians doing great work throughout the community and they're an absolute positive good for us. We'll be right back. 
Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists, and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. There is a pretty fascinating trajectory to all of this as far as I see it. I mean, we've had um, nine years of uh, three conservative governments in a international security environment that has been deteriorating and a domestic security environment under great challenge. A lot has been done, I think, you know, credit where it's due to, to put in the building blocks of capability. Uh, if you if you look at the, you know, the resourcing of the agencies, if you look at the uh, the legislation on on foreign interference and so forth, uh, if you look at the uh, the well, you know, the harder edge to Australian security policy externally. At the same time, this has come with the kinds of risks uh, that you've spoken about, uh, the uh, the risks to our own social cohesion by, if you like, um, over-identifying particular communities uh, with, 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 with dangers that, um, you know, often only a very small number of individuals have responsibility for. It occurs to me that a government like the one that's coming in now with, with, with strong rhetoric around inclusion, around a much more unified uh, national posture, if that can be adapted to recognising that this is now a tough security environment, then we almost have the opportunity of benefiting from the capability improvements of the last nine years while, um, while mitigating those, those dangers to social cohesion. Maybe I'm being a little bit too optimistic and, and kind of trying to reconcile opposites here. Uh, but I'd be interested maybe uh, from you first, Caitlin, and then Duncan, in your views about how can we, if you like, have the best of both worlds uh, with governments of um, successive governments of two political hues? Mm. You know, I think that's a really great point because and particularly in the foreign policy space, we're not going to see, uh, you know, radical change in the way that governments work. And, and I think there is an opportunity to build on the expertise that's built up over time, the relationships, the understandings and the lessons learned. I don't know that 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 we we engage in that space all that well um, and sometimes politics simply gets in the way. Um, so I think that that what we're starting to see, what I've noticed even over the last couple of days has been this discussion about a greater role for consultation in government. Now that's going to be a necessity with, su with such, um, with a crossbench in such numbers that it is. That, co that could be a real positive for us going forward. I think it's an opportunity to build awareness on some key foreign policy lessons or issues to understand lessons from the past and to get greater visibility and buy-in 
to the significance of foreign policy for Australia's domestic um, prosperity going forward as well. So, look, I'm optimistic, Rory. Uh, it may be the optimism, you know, I'm, of, of that, that comes immediately after you see the sort of change that we've seen and there is a sense of buoyancy in the electorate at the moment that, that a, a kind of lighter step. So I am optimistic that... Democracy that, works. <laughs> that democracy works, yeah. I'll leave it there. Mm. No, look, I don't, I don't mean to. Um, I don't mean to, to to interrupt your buoyancy there, Caitlin. I, I think um, it's it's going to be very interesting for all of us to see not only how this plays out with the Labor government, which which which, uh, despite all of its um, its um, strong messaging and agenda, actually does not have more than a third of the vote uh, mm-hmm. as a primary vote. Right. A large body in between of um, of independents, greens, small parties, and so forth, uh, and and of course the coalition um, licking its political wounds. It strikes me that there's now uh, going to be a whole uh, a whole crew of new parliamentarians who, while they've got some strong issues they care about, are not necessarily uh, going to be deeply informed on security or foreign policy. So that also, I think, creates space for organisations like our own uh, to help uh, in, in in briefing, to help in uh, you know socialising the Australian political class to understanding you know the, the great challenges that lie ahead. What do you think? Absolutely. And do you know what I thought was interesting? Just prior to the election, I sent out a tweet to some of, of, of my colleagues out in the region to say, how is the Australian election being covered in uh, in the Indo-Pacific? And it was really interesting to see that, you know, for many countries, it just wasn't making news coverage really at all. But but conversely, we won't we don't talk about the outside world all that much either. So you know, Thailand at the moment is preoccupied with the uh, an incoming governor in Bangkok. New Zealand has its its budget coming out this week. So we probably also have to play a greater role in bringing the issues of of our neighbours, the issues that are making the headlines for our neighbours, into our conversations as well. And that's part of that relationship building. But it does strike me that. We have a small but a pretty solid ecosystem of think tanks that can do that and we probably need to engage in that national conversation as well as, as um, you know, in terms of how we can coherently engage in that conversation and and just change the tone of the conversation a little as well. So we've only got a little time left in this uh, discussion today, and I really do want to uh, get into defence policy in particular, Duncan, so I want to bring you out on that. But if you have any thoughts, firstly, on the the political dimensions on, for example, uh, whether in fact uh, we're going to see more engagement across parliament on security and foreign policy issues and how that works, I'd be interested in your views. Mm. Um, I, I'm not sure that I see a particular upturn or uplift in in what I describe as sort of cross parliamentary discussion, uh, except in one respect, and that is to do with defence funding going forward. Um, let me come back to that in a moment. Uh, I, I need to start with our alliances. The alliances we have are good. The ANZUS Alliance has served us well for 70 years, its 70th anniversary last year. Uh, if it is to serve us well into the future, we will have to continue to work hard at that alliance and make sure that it and we remain relevant to uh, to our objectives. 
Uh, we need very urgently to start working on fellow travellers in the defence space and make sure that we have very good relationships um, internationally. And you in mean that regional, regard. regional, uh, regional partners. I'm talking about yeah. regional partners, uh, but also extend that out to our partnership with NATO, which is a very important partnership. Uh, if Coming back to the, the issue of money, um, AUKUS has been um, a, a game changer and I would like to state how much I agree technically with the decision to pursue nuclear-powered submarines into the future. My regret is the decision is 20 years late, but it has been made and it's been a very difficult one and technically I agree with it. The way in which it was done, of course, is as a matter as another matter altogether and it's had some downside. But, uh, and also the second issue is that the technical um, benefits which we prospectively will get from working collaboratively, more collaboratively with the United States and Britain are, of course, very clear and very necessary. Uh, we need some quick wins on this and we're working on particularly guided weapons in in particular to get some quick wins. Uh, I have a concern that we have bought nothing much that goes bang for many, many years in the defence capability portfolio, and I, I carry responsibility for some of that as a former secretary of the department, but we urgently need to buy things which will give us asymmetric advantage very quickly. Um, if we think that 2% or 3% of GDP is going to pay for nuclear-powered boats and for the defence capability that I believe we are going to require in the not-too-distant future, we are kidding ourselves. It will require a much larger sum of money, and that is going to require a particular social licence to be obtained by government from the community. And this is where perhaps the cross-parliamentary issue might come into play. But there will need to be serious work done on the social licence to enable government to spend more on defence because at a time when we have great debt, spending more on defence is obviously going to impact standard of living and essentially the kind of the personal prosperity of Australians. And when you look at countries which have run out of lead time, strategic lead time, which you cite countries such as the State of Israel or perhaps even the Republic of, of Singapore, where they, they have assessed that their strategic lead time is reduced, uh, we are now in a situation where that pertains here. Our strategic lead time has reduced from the once 20 to 30 years that we used to talk about to perhaps 5 to 10, perhaps if we're lucky. With those reduced strategic lead times, we need to be doing a lot and a lot quickly. And my concern is that that sense of immediacy and urgency needs to be transmitted into the defence debate and into the defence organization. No longer can we afford to have these massive missteps of um, uh, equipment, you know, the, the capability procurement failures. You think back to issues like the Sea Sprite helicopter, a very expensive, let's call it a, a blunder, uh, to pay the French $5.5 billion for a submarine not, develop, not delivered. We can't afford to have these sort of distractions from the defence dollar. It need, all the defence dollars need to be going to providing an effect. And I guess one of the challenges here is how how do we, uh, as a national security community, convey the seriousness of that message without going uh, without playing into the politics of fear? You know, I mean, if, if you could argue that uh, 
if there was a political figure who in recent times did give a sense of urgency to defence capability and defence spending, at least in the message, it was it was Peter Dutton. Um, but of course, that was very controversial and contentious, often in the way in the way he went about it. Uh, I think one really interesting thing for the new Australian Parliament to watch is the way in which Europe is beginning to uh, not just pivot but rapidly turn around on security and defence uh, right across the political spectrum. Uh, you know, look, look at the way the German Greens, for example, are thinking in very, um, very hard terms now about defence. Look at the way in which Finland and Sweden are suddenly. Joining NATO, countries that are often have often been associated with with you know non-aligned and progressive thinking. So I think there are some really new and serious conversations to be had. I think on that point, you know, I'm I'm reminded of the comments of Teddy Roosevelt nearly a hundred years ago, the 26th president of the U.S., when he said, "In life, uh, one should uh, talk softly but carry a big stick, and you'll go far." And my concern in the last few years has been that we have been rather louder than we should have been. We've been in the forefront of some of the um, criticism of states such as China uh, when we might well have been better to have been one back and one wide, uh, speak softly but carry a big stick. It doesn't detract in any way from the need for us to uh, work on our defence preparedness uh, as a matter of urgency. Caitlin, in, in wrapping up, it'd be interesting if you've got any uh, either questions or observations on the capability question, whether it's on defence capability and the capability gap or the trade-offs uh, that we now face, or going back to your earlier point uh, regarding the uh, the substantial investment that will need to be made in, in diplomacy and development assistance and, and where that money comes from. Thanks, Rory. And I think we are going to see these tensions at play around change and continuity. And we've we've all really said that by and large, we are going to see more continuity um, going forward in defence and foreign policy, but there are significant areas of change that have been the differentiators um, for this incoming government. I, I would agree that we're going to really need to see some quick wins in, you know, in, in a number of areas that should start with a clear statement of direction on both defence and foreign policy. Now, there's been a lot of talk about a gap in defence capability right now. I think we're going to need to see uh, much more concrete ideas on how that capability gap is going to be filled. And I think in terms of uh, diplomacy, you know, you hit on this earlier, Rory, as well, this is about building capability not just within the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade but actually across the APS, across tiers of government um, in terms of how to deliver statecraft that is going to be multidimensional, that can handle multiple issues at the same time and navigate multiple relationships that are not always easy. And I think that's where we, we will need to see some quick wins but we also need to see the foundation for long-term outcomes. And just on the capability gap, you know, one of the issues we will face across the board um, will relate to Australia's productivity going forward, our innovative capacity, our skills and labour to build, to, to kind of come together as a workforce to take this very complex agenda forward. It's no longer, and I think this is this has been the case for a very long time, it's no longer a matter of foreign affairs being the stuff that happens out there. It is so deeply interconnected to how we as a nation operate, um, to how we, you know, become productive, to how we stick in the top 20 G20 nations if we can, and that's not assured at this stage. So, you know, I think there's a huge agenda ahead. My advice would be you know, we've, we've got to 
move quickly, but I guess make gains with haste, but we've got to keep an eye on the long-term vision and not move so quickly that we lose focus on, on that long-term view. Look, thank you. I'm going to take that as my um, cue to try and pull these threads together, if I may, uh, and, and to shamelessly advocate something that I have um, argued for previously, which is what I would call a national interest strategy. I mean, I think there's um, there's every logic now to uh, attempting to to craft an integrated national security strategy, uh, and that's something that I think has been spoken about uh, many times over the years. But um, in my view, has never has never really substantially been achieved. I know there was a national security strategy in 2013, but I think it only went part of the way. But we can and should now put that in terms of a broader national interest strategy. You know, redefining security to uh, to focus on that resilience and cohesion at home, and to demonstrate that in in in, in the long run you can't have uh, strong national security without a strong economy. But you need to do that intergenerationally, not simply in terms of your 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 uh, your terms of trade and your um, your trade balance tomorrow. Um, but I'll also note in closing that uh, the big challenges haven't gone away. I mean, I think we can uh, look at the um, the new sense of of confidence in many parts of the community, in parts of the policy community, in the way Australia is projecting to the region and the world. That doesn't change the magnitude of the the challenge of um, Chinese power and coercion. It certainly doesn't change uh, the uh, the climate emergency and the impact that has. On our um, our interests and on sustainability, and it doesn't change the fundamental disruption to the global order and the rules based order that uh, that Putin's Russia has inflicted uh, in recent months. So I think there's an enormous amount of work ahead for this government. I think that uh, expectation management is going to become a thing very very quickly, and I think that the advice and counsel uh, of um, of colleagues like you, uh, Caitlin and Duncan in the public debate is going to be absolutely vital. So on that note, I'm going to thank you for your thoughts today. Uh, Let's perhaps have this conversation again uh, in a year or two's time. Uh, But in the meantime, thanks for joining me on the National Security Podcast. Thank you, Rory. And thanks, Duncan. Thanks, Rory. Thanks, Caitlin.